imaginary stories that you cannot get out of your head. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence or explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Lydia danced exquisitely last night. My heart swelled as she hit every mark. Every arabesque was utter perfection, and she landed each step with so much precision it felt like watching a heavenly body take human form. No one in the audience could take their eyes off of her. There's no feeling quite like the moment when the lights go down and the crowd grows silent, hearts pounding in unison in anticipation of the swell of the music and the moment when the curtains fly up and the bodies fill the stage. Limbs extended, defying gravity, reminding us all of the miraculous nature of the human form and what we are capable of with enough focus, determination, and skill. And Lydia was predisposed to be a prima ballerina with her delicate features, long neck and limbs, her lithe body, and advanced musculature. But she's more than any of us could have ever imagined. She's absolutely splendid and I couldn't be more proud. At the end of the show, I stood back for a moment and watched as her fellow dancers and admirers gathered around her to lavish her with acclamation and adoration. By the time I got to the inner circle, her long arms were loaded with bouquets in every color and arrangement. Her cheeks were flushed pink from praise, and her eyes were glassy with tears. What a marvel she is, a woman exclaimed next to me and placed her hand on my shoulder affectionately. To overcome what she's overcome and learn to dance like that, oh, you must be so proud. I smiled and nodded, keeping my eyes on my Lydia, who turned to each of her admirers gracefully and acknowledged all of them individually, giving each person the generous gift of her time before moving on to the next. Before I could greet my Lydia with a hug and shower her with praise, the head of the dance academy intercepted me. We've organized a dinner tonight for our top dancers and their families, she said, raising her voice so she could be heard over the excited crowd. We'd love for you and Lydia to attend. There will be some very important people there. They saw Lydia dance tonight and are very excited to meet her. Yes, we'd love that, I responded warmly but evenly in the precise tone I'd practiced to communicate with women like her, women who had grown up with money, poise, and a refinement that women like me had been born far removed from. When I first moved to the city, I studied those women. I'd spend an entire week saving just enough money to afford a coffee or a glass of wine at one of the cafes frequented by the city's most affluent and important women, I purchased one expensive outfit secondhand that I wore over and over again, and it was just nice enough that none of the staff or the women in the cafes be alerted to the fact that I was a total outsider. Even though I purchased it secondhand, it still took me four months to save up for it, and I had to wash it by hand and hang it on the line I'd strung over the radiator in the tiny room I rented to dry. I clearly wasn't one of them, but I didn't openly offend them in the smart wool suit that fit me just right, and I worked extra hard to set my hair into shiny waves that distracted from my homely face. 
I could hide amongst them and pretend to be a student at one of the prestigious universities nearby, and just watch and listen as the staff all but ignored me and the other patrons saw right through me. I noted the calm way they reacted to each other, even when they laughed or expressed shock or sadness. I watched how they glided instead of walked, how they demanded all eyes be on them without saying a word, how they convinced the world that they belonged and they deserved and they would get whatever they wanted with a simple flick of their wrist or furrow of their brow. I knew that if I was going to infiltrate their world, it would be with my intelligence. I wasn't pretty enough or charming enough to win them over like Marilyn Monroe or Oprah Winfrey, who also came from humble beginnings. But I've always been very smart. Scary smart, my grandmother used to say. I took a job as a tutor for a very wealthy family, and the mother of the children I tutored three times a week took a special liking to me. She was a very kind woman and confided in me that she'd also come from nothing and gossiped to me about the women in her social circle and how ridiculous she thought they were. One day, I got to the house extra early and she made us tea and made me sit down at the marble bar that spanned the length of the kitchen to chat, just the two of us. She was an incredibly beautiful woman with a long neck and flame-red hair. I was always so captivated by watching her. That time seemed to fly when I was with her. On the rare occasion when it was her and I alone together, I'd all but hold my breath in an attempt not to break the spell and not draw attention to the fact that I didn't belong in her gorgeous house, staring at her gorgeous face and listening to her give me the life advice I so desperately craved. She asked about my life and if I had a boyfriend, which I never did, and then reassured me that I was so young and so smart that I could make my life whatever I wanted. She then leaned in over the bar, brought her face close enough to mine that I could smell the luxurious products she used to style herself so exquisitely, and lowered her voice to almost a whisper, despite the fact that there was no one else in the room. Her eyes twinkled, and she confided in me that she didn't belong in her world. She didn't think like those people or act like those people, but that she tricked those people into thinking she belonged and having that little secret to herself meant more to her than all of the fine things she owned and the important circles she circulated through. You're like me, I can tell, she said, and her eyes shined a little brighter. You're a watcher and a learner, and you'll figure out a way. Mark my words. She laid a soft, warm hand on mine, gave it a little squeeze, and it was the single kindest and most exciting moment of my life. This spectacular woman believed in me, and it was in that moment that I knew, without a shadow of a doubt, she was right. That I would find my way in, one way or another. I wouldn't be an ordinary and invisible girl forever, and someday these cultivated, urbane women would look at me and see me and envy me. I would find a way. The woman paid me to teach her children, but the job also gave me access to her. I had access to one of the most refined people I'd ever met through those weekly sessions, and I was careful not to stare, but I soaked up every single thing she did and said. At night, I'd practice saying words the way she did, with a well-bred accent that rich somehow all have. 
I'd practice laughing with enough force to pull people's attention, but not too much that I'd turn them off. I'd practice my posture until my bones ached and restricted my eating until my stomach growled, and all of the study and sacrifice was worth it. Eventually, it started to work. The lady started giving me some of her clothes she had grown out of or didn't want anymore, and so I was less reliant on my one designer suit to be seen in high society. I put on one of her cashmere sweaters that cost more than three months of my rent, and suddenly people started to smile at me as I walked down their wide and immaculate streets. The women in the cafes would ask me what time it was or how I liked the book I was reading, and I'd answer in the confident but restrained way I'd seen them respond to each other, and they'd nod with acceptance or saying something charming in return, and I savored each interaction like the delicacy that it was. And then, one day, the woman changed my life in a seismic way. She'd already brought me to life with her warmth and insight and generosity, but then one fall afternoon, she ripped down every remaining barrier and handed me everything I'd need to activate my destiny. I was wrapping up a session with her oldest son when the phone started ringing and the woman rushed into the office we were sitting in to answer it. The woman was dressed for one of her many events and propped the phone between her cheek and her shoulder so she could finish buckling one of her shoes. Oh no, she said after a couple of seconds listening to the person on the other line. Oh, I'm just so sorry to hear it, but I'm glad she's okay. Ugh, I hate to go without you though. It's going to be such a bore and you were the only reason I was excited to go. She paused to listen for a couple of more beats and then said, well, give her my love and tell her auntie will bring her a sweet tomorrow to help her feel better. Okay, love you both. Okay, bye. She hung up the phone and turned to me, slightly exasperated and clearly a little shaken. That was my best friend Penny. You know Penny, right? I shook my head in agreement. I'd met Penny no less than 50 times as she seemed to be a permanent fixture in the woman's house. I assumed she was the woman's best friend as the woman acted so much more like herself around Penny and dropped a lot of the superficial showmanship I'd seen her put on around other people who'd come to the house. Well, Penny was supposed to go to this fundraiser with me tonight, but her daughter took an awful spill down a flight of stairs, and she's fine, but she broke her arm and so was in no state to be left alone, and so Penny had to cancel. She sighed a deep sigh and glanced at her delicate watch. I'm just so bummed, and it's too late to invite someone else. She threw up her hands, and I could see her weighing her options in her head. And then she glanced at her watch again. Her eyes got suddenly wide, and she turned her head to stare straight at me. Anne, you could come. She nodded her head as the plan formed in her mind, and she started to smile. Oh, Anne, would you please come? I really don't want to go alone, and you could borrow one of my outfits since we're the same size. We have just enough time to get you ready if we hurry. Please say yes. I opened and closed my mouth a couple of times from the shock of receiving such a coveted invitation, and I very nearly declined as my stomach and chest filled with anxious butterflies. But I stuffed them down and reminded myself of why I was here and that this was everything I'd ever wanted. And so I blurted out, yes, and then blushed for my enthusiasm. 
Oh boy, the woman said and clapped her hands together, delighted by my acceptance. Oh, Anne, what would I do without you? You're such a dear. She shooed her son off to the playroom to play with his siblings and then gently dragged me into her room where we selected a simple but exceedingly elegant black dress for me to wear. She quickly but expertly twisted my hair up into a stylish updo and applied my makeup so that I looked mysterious while still being youthful, and I had no idea my face had the ability to transform like that. I wasn't quite beautiful, but I was suddenly alluring, and I memorized every movement her hand made as she transformed me from an unremarkable but poised young woman into someone more significant, someone who could convince other people that they mattered. The night was a glorious blur of perfectly quaffed people and demurely sipped champagne and handshakes and jokes landed and smiles and nods and connections launched and networks enforced and most of all, it was the night that society first saw me. Being the woman's guest gave me entree into the world I'd been orbiting around for so long and her arm looped through mine and her warm introductions to all of her friends told them that I belonged and gave me the stamp of approval that I required to really start to make moves toward infiltrating their world. And I did everything right. I smiled perfectly. I reacted flawlessly. I lowered my lashes like I'd watched the other women do. And I even made a couple of witty remarks that inspired peals of laughter from the circle I'd just been introduced to and words of appreciation that the other women had brought me along. I was resplendent, and I was in. I knew not to act overly eager, and that restraint was the key to staying on the trajectory toward greatness. And so I employed everything I'd ever learned to remain a shining example of high society as long as I was in their company. And it worked. A couple of the women that I met that night observed their friends and husbands reacting to one of my witty statements and took the opportunity to invite me to volunteer at the charity they'd recently taken the helm of. They could use a bright young thing like me, they said, as they handed me their cards and encouraged me to come to the meeting the following month. I played it cool and said that I'd have to check my calendar, but would make it a priority to try to attend, knowing full well that I'd be counting down the days until that meeting like it was Christmas. For the next month, I sent my studies and practices into overdrive to make sure I'd be pitch perfect in my presentation when the meeting finally rolled around. I forced myself to speak with more strangers in public and replace the insecurity forever overflowing from my cells with poise and confidence and it worked. Armed with one of the woman's chic outfits and the designer handbag she'd gifted me as a Christmas present, I took a deep breath, held my head high, and walked into that meeting and the first day of the rest of my life. The women I met that night took me to all of the places I'd never been. They introduced me to other women who invited me to then volunteer at their organizations where I met even more important people. Those important people were impressed by the work I did for their organizations and in turn introduced me to even more important people who gave me job opportunities that allowed me to move out of the room I rented and into my own apartment in a beautiful building on the outer edge of their neighborhood. Eventually, I worked hard enough and made enough of an impact that I was invited to dinners and cocktail parties and galas and fundraisers. And while I wouldn't say that I took the city by storm, I was definitely inching 
ever closer to the top. I'm smart, so I've always played my hand very carefully and knew that my best angle would be to keep everyone guessing and never fully reveal who I was or what I was up to. As long as they were intrigued, they'd keep inviting me along because the one thing wealthy people love is something they can't have. And they'll do anything to get it, including extending invitations to the woman that they know doesn't fully belong, but plays the game, makes them look good, and keeps them guessing. I use my intellect to help their charities exceed their fundraising goals, and to come up with interesting ways for their parties to stand out from the crowd, and to interject facts and anecdotes that I knew were fascinating enough for them to keep me around. And then one day, I met him. And he gave me Lydia. And now here I am. I'm on my way to dinner with some of the wealthiest and most important people in the city because they want to know my girl. No one is immune to stardom, and my Lydia is a star. She is a bright, brilliant eruption of talent. She is hypnotic and arresting, and she is mine. Dinner that night was a who's who of wealth, celebrity, and power, and the attendees were a perfect curation of people who were born to be the people that everyone else wanted to be. The show had garnered such a buzz that it was sold out several months in advance, and only people with extreme money and influence had made it to the opening night. And they wanted to know my Lydia, and bask in her light, and breathe in her air, and collect whatever it is that emanates off of superstars and makes their presence so valuable. Lydia was aglow with the attention, and made me so proud with how captivating she was, and how effortlessly she blended in with the extraordinary mix of dinner guests. I allowed her a glass of champagne to celebrate her big night, which made her cheeks flush an additional shade of pink, which only added to her charm. Toward the end of dinner, one of the guests, a foreign businessman who had more money than everyone at the table combined, and had also had more to drink than everyone at the table combined, came up to me and threw an admiring arm around my shoulder. I will never get over the fact that she can't speak, but that she can communicate so beautifully. He slurred, and his eyes filled with tears as he gazed at Lydia. She's a miracle, you know, he said, and swiveled his head toward me. I nodded and smiled, so proud that everyone felt the same way that I did about her. Can't say a word, but we all know exactly what she's saying. It's just, just, it's just incredible, he said, and his head slumped with deep emotion, made even heavier by all of the alcohol coursing through his bloodstream. He squeezed my shoulder uncomfortably and lumbered off to slur at someone else who had entertained his drunken behavior because his wealth and status mandated that he could do whatever he wanted and we would all accept it. But he was right. Lydia was a miracle. She was my miracle. And I knew I couldn't openly take credit for her. But I was the reason that she was here. And in turn, she was the reason that I was here. It was a beautiful symbiosis and I allowed myself to feel the pride and gratitude that spread through me after all of the days I'd been patient and all of the work I'd done to get to that point. I'd finally arrived. One thing I knew more than anything was that it was always important to leave them wanting more. It was the first and most important lesson I'd learned, and so after dessert was finished, I stood up and announced that it was time for Lydia and I to leave. The entire table protested, desperate for Lydia to stay. 
and insistent that we stick around for a nightcap, but I reminded them that she was an elite athlete and an artist and that people like her don't get days off, and so we had to go so she could rest up and stay on top. They all begrudgingly agreed, and after a round of hugs and air kisses and more hearty proclamations of Lydia's genius and praise for her performance, we were off. Lydia stared out of the window at the city passing by their cab on the way home, with a soft smile on her lips and a light shining in her eyes. Even though she couldn't say it out loud, I knew she was grateful to me in that moment, and I sensed her thoughts as she replayed the perfect night over and over in her mind. Once we were home, Lydia showered and got into bed, and I stroked her hair lovingly and told her how proud I was of her. She smiled back at me as her eyes started to close involuntarily, and exhaustion overcame her after such an exciting night. You are my perfect, perfect girl, I cooed as her eyes fell shut and her breathing slowed. You are my good luck charm. Lucky number three. I smiled down at her for a couple more minutes, then stood up to secure her restraints. As was our routine every night, I pulled them tightly enough that she wouldn't get loose, but not too tight that they'd make a mark, then pulled up her quilt to her chin so that she was nice and snug. I turned off the light and shut the door behind me, locking the series of bolts and padlocks like I had done a million nights before. I had really hoped that my first Lydia would have made it this far. I would have done anything for her to be the exemplification of grace and accomplishment that this Lydia is. She was my flesh and blood, after all. She was the child that I grew inside of me, my offspring, my sweet little baby. But she was also my reflection. I met Lydia One's father at a work acquaintance's beach house one warm spring night. I was invited out for a barbecue to meet one of the executives of a company that my bosses wanted to merge with, and they invited me along because I knew the new programs better than anyone and had an uncanny ability to recall important details on the spot and had become an invaluable asset at the company as a result. Lydia One's father was staying in the area for the summer while on break from his expensive graduate school out west. And while he wasn't as handsome as most of the other men in his social strata, he made up for it by being smarter and funnier than the rest. I think he recognized the same in me, and by the end of the night, we had secluded ourselves to a bench overlooking the beach and talked and laughed for hours. I'd never allowed myself to let loose very much, but that night I drank a little more than normal, and by the time the party was over, I was pretty tipsy, and had stayed much later than I'd planned to. By the time we realized the party had dwindled and the night was over, the work associate I'd caught a ride with was long gone, and the taxi services were closed for the night. He was spending the night at the beach house and assured me it would be fine to spend the night on one of the many sofas and then poured me another glass of wine. As I looked into his eyes, I felt something stir inside me that I'd never experienced before, and it was a mixture of longing and pleasure that I'd never allowed myself to explore. 
I had forced myself to remain on such high alert my entire life in my desperate attempt to fit in and seem like I belonged, that it never dawned on me that I could actually maybe be happy one day, or that I could feel the things that everyone around me seemed to be feeling. I spent the night at the beach house that night, but I didn't sleep on the couch. I stayed with him that night and for many, many more nights that summer. And by the time the first leaves started turning orange on the branches to signify that fall was upon us, I was head over heels in love, and he was going back to school. He promised me he'd write and call and that we would see each other on the holidays. And I cried and nearly begged for him to continue to love me as he left my apartment to head to the airport on the day he was scheduled to go back to school. He wrote and called regularly for the first few weeks, but after a month, the calls and letters dwindled, and by the time I found out that I was pregnant with Lydia One, I had descended into a dark pit of devastation and desperation that he was refusing to rescue me from. By the time I called to tell him that I was pregnant, I had already called so many times before that he and his roommates had start letting my calls go straight to voicemail. In the middle of leaving the message on the machine, he finally picked up the phone and essentially screamed at me that I was a liar and was insane and that I was sick to think that I could trick him into taking me back by pretending that I was pregnant. He threatened to have his powerful father call the authorities if I didn't leave him alone. And that was the last time I ever heard his voice. I gave birth to Lydia one eight and a half months later, and it was wonderful at first. I named her the most beautiful name I'd ever heard. The name that I knew would only belong to someone who's perfect and would be loved by everyone who ever met her. She was my sweet little baby, and everyone gave us so much attention, and even strangers stopped me to admire my little girl. The other mothers in my circles gave me even more attention now that I was a member of their sacred club, and it was nice to feel a little closer to the woman who I'd socialized with, but had never been more than friendly acquaintances. They invited me to their lunches and gave me insider tips and tricks to make parenting easier and applauded me for being such a modern woman and attempting it on my own. I never told anyone who Lydia's father was, and had instead spun the story to make it sound like it had been something I wanted to do on my own, and that women could have it all, and all of the other feminist mumbo-jumbo I'd heard on TV. And they ate it up for a while. But then Lydia got older, and weirder, and more awkward, and more unpleasant, and then everything started to unravel. By the time Lydia One was four years old, I was teetering on becoming a total pariah. Lydia One was so unlikable, the calls and invitations for lunches or cocktails or barbecues had almost completely dried up. I'd get invited out for work functions where children weren't allowed, but there were no more playdates, no more tea parties, and no more outings with other women who would offer me sympathy or encouragement or praise. I was strange Lydia's mom, and the child was a total person repellent. She was everything I'd worked so excruciatingly hard to bury deep, deep inside of myself. She was the child that I had been at her age. 
and had abandoned so long ago that it was shocking to have her in my house to serve as a constant reminder of exactly why I had done everything I'd done to leave her far, far behind. I remembered all of the meals I'd sacrificed to afford my first designer outfit, all of the days I'd spent in cafes studying the women I would eventually become, all of the nights I'd sacrificed partying with people my age so that I could practice becoming perfect so that they would eventually accept me and embrace me. And I remembered why I had pushed Penny's daughter down the stairs all those years ago so that the woman would invite me to the fundraiser and my life would finally begin. And so, Lydia One had to go. After I'd disposed of Lydia One, I made up a story that she'd been accepted into a foreign language immersion school for gifted children, and that she would be staying with some relatives while she attended, and that I would sacrifice anything for her to have the best opportunities. And then I started looking for Lydia Two. On nights and weekends, I'd take the train out of town and spend hours looking for the perfect girl. She had to be the same age as Lydia One and look similar enough that it wouldn't be a total shock to insert Lydia One's changeling into my life. But she had to be better than Lydia One in every way. Prettier, smarter, kinder, more charming, and with the capacity for greatness beyond both of our wildest dreams. It took seven months, but I eventually spotted her at a park with her mother one Sunday afternoon. She was radiant in the sunlight as she laughed and played, and I could tell even from a hundred feet away that she was special. She would be my special, special girl, and she would take me everywhere I deserved to go. I stalked her for three months and watched from afar as strangers melted in her presence, totally taken by her beauty and charm, and everyone around her found her irresistible and wonderful in every way. She was charmed, and she would be mine, and once I studied her enough that I knew every single detail of her routine, I took home my Lydia too. And Lydia too was a total disaster. I spent so much time with Lydia, too, training her for her new life and bending her mind and instilling the right amount of fear, but Lydia, too, taught me that no matter how much a child fears you, and despite the fact that they aren't allowed out of your sight except to sleep, they are still a child, and they will slip up one day, and they will expose you as the monster that you are. At first, everything went just as planned. I reintroduced my circles to Lydia, too, when she was five and a half, and everyone was beside themselves at how much she'd grown and changed. Everyone begged me for the information for the program that I'd sent her to because she'd come back so different. She was suddenly so exceptional, and they all wanted their children to have the same training so they could be as remarkable as my Lydia, too. My phone started ringing again, and the invites flooded in, and everyone wanted Lydia, too, and I at all their birthdays and holidays and playdates and events. For four glorious months, Lydia, too, glided through life with me, and while I know she missed home sometimes, I think she also enjoyed all of the attention my beautiful associates lavished on her in her beautiful new life. Lydia, too, had been born into an average family who lived in a modest suburb, and even at her young age, 
I could tell that she knew she deserved more and really enjoyed her life with me, despite herself. And then, one horrible day, I brought Lydia, too, to my colleague's house for their daughter's sixth birthday party. The day went very well at first. All of the kids circled around Lydia as soon as we got there, drawn to her lovely face and charismatic personality. The kids played while I socialized with the parents, and over and over people complimented me on what a sweet and stunning child she was, and followed up by insisting that I bring her to something they were planning in the future. I beamed at their compliments while remaining restrained and humble as I had my entire life with them. I wanted them to know that I appreciated their admiration, but didn't want them to feel like I was too grateful, because too much enthusiasm signaled weakness— And since I'd worked so hard to make my way back into their good graces, I had to tread lightly to stay on top. After lunch and cake, we all moved inside for the birthday girl to open her presents, and everyone oohed and awed appropriately as the spoiled rich kid barely paid attention to the expensive gifts the other children had brought her. Then right before the presents had all been opened and the party would start to wind down, the little girl opened a gift that was a cosmetics palette that was too mature for a six-year-old girl in my opinion. But once again, the girl studied it for less than a second and then tossed it into the pile with all the rest of the unappreciated gifts. As the makeup sailed through the air toward the pile, I saw Lydia too's eyes light up and she exclaimed with all of her five-year-old enthusiasm, My first mommy had that! And rushed over to pick up the plastic case. Her eyes welled up slightly as she studied the colorful eyeshadows and lipsticks displayed under the clear cover of the long case. Before I could say anything, she followed up with, Yeah, Daddy liked this blue one, and pointed to a soft blue square of powder. Almost as soon as the words left her mouth, she caught herself and dropped the makeup, shattering the case into a million pieces. Little puffs of colored powder clouded the air around her feet, and her eyes darted toward me, while her smile vanished, and her face filled with fear. Oh, Lydia, you're such a goof, I laughed, hoping no one had heard her. But every set of eyes in the room was suddenly on me. A few people laughed nervously and shifted in place as I tried to distract everyone by asking the host where I could find their broom. She directed me to the closet off of the kitchen, and as I was retrieving some cleaning supplies to clear the mess Lydia too made, I overheard someone in the kitchen speaking in hushed tones. What the fuck did she mean by that? One voice said. Lydia doesn't have a dad. Everyone knows that she doesn't have a dad. Yeah, odd Anne has been broadcasting that she's a single mom since the moment that kid was born. Like, we get it. You're a modern woman. God, she's so weird. How'd she get such a cute kid? Well, you heard her, the first voice said more urgently. Lydia's just a kid, and kids say funny things, but I'm honestly a little concerned. Yeah, she's been so different since she came back. The second voice trailed off, and I didn't stick around to listen to another word. I dropped the supplies with a clatter and rushed into the living room to grab Lydia too, and left the house without saying a word. It devastated me to end Lydia too, but I didn't have a choice. And when I got rid of Lydia, too, I had to get rid of my entire life along with her. I had no choice. Even if I was able to explain away the things that Lydia said at the party, 
There was always a chance she'd slip up again, and aside from that, it was already too late. I had known those people for too long, and they knew too much of the old me. The me that was still learning and trying so hard to fit in. They called me Odd Anne behind my back, for God's sake. And I needed to leave Odd Anne behind. I'd worked too hard and come too far. And it was time to start fresh with everything I knew and everything I had to offer as my new self. It's not hard to start over if you have money. And so after Lydia too was gone, I faked a family emergency and quit my job with no notice, then packed up everything I owned, moved to a bigger city where it would be easier for me to hide from my old life. It was easy to find a great job with my clothes and confidence and resume, and my old boss gave me a glowing review. So I felt sure that any rumors that Lydia too might have started had died after we left the birthday party. She was just a kid after all, and kids say the craziest things. I found Lydia three before I moved to the city. I took a couple of months and headed out west to find her, not wanting to take the chance that she'd be spotted by someone who knew her on the East Coast. That was the first mistake I'd made with Lydia too. I chose a girl who was around the same age that Lydia one and two would have been, and also looked like them, so that she wouldn't raise any alarm bells if I ran into someone who knew odd Anne in my old life. It took me a while, but fate brought her to me one day when I was having lunch in a diner in the middle of Nebraska, and I spotted her dancing in front of a picture window in her dance school across the street from the diner. She was breathtaking as she moved, and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that she was my Lydia Three. And I was right. Sweet Lydia Three also took to her new life with the same grace that Lydia Two had. But the other thing I learned from Lydia Two is that kids say the darndest things. And so I took care of that problem in Lydia Three before I brought her home. There was always the chance that she could write something down to blow my cover, but I never ever let Lydia Three out of my sight, not for one second. I was her teacher, her cheerleader, her protector, her mentor, her mother. I took a child with every bit of talent and potential in the world and made sure she ascended to greatness. I gave her everything she'd need to be magnificent, to be loved and cherished and worshipped and lauded. She is my masterpiece, my sweet, sweet Lydia Three. The story was written by Courtney Eck and narrated by Natasha Marchevka. For more scary stories that you cannot get out of your head, please join our Patreon at patreon slash pleaseleavepod. Please follow Please Leave on Facebook and Instagram at pleaseleavepod. Our email is pleaseleavepod at gmail.com and our website is pleaseleavepod.com. 
If you like this story, please consider leaving us a rating or a review. There's just a couple of us trying to get this off the ground, so your support means the world to us. This has been a Two Penguins Media Production.